Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. So I would love to talk to chefs about that question. Like, how is it that uh, the most amazing meal you've ever served, how did that come about? You know, what's, what's the combination of, of intuition and luck and um, consciousness and so on? This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Here are two classic conversations from This Is Taste featuring two literary titans. George Saunders is the author of many works, including the Booker Prize-winning Lincoln and the Bardo. Here we talk about pizza and Italian delis on the south side of Chicago, as well as lunch in the Texas oil fields. We talk about success in the kitchen and how intuition crashes together with luck and speculate the shape of food in the year 2300. Also on the show is Gary Steingart a New York Times bestselling novelist and food writer who has written memorable books including The Russian Debutante's Handbook, Super Sad True Love Story, and his most recent work, the rollicking pandemic satire Our Country Friends. In this episode, we talk about some of Gary's world travels, both as a hired gun and for fun, as well as what he's eating and drinking in his upstate New York home. We also remember New York City restaurants from the 1990s and early 2000s, including fond memories of the long-lost meatpacking district bistro Florent, which plays a role in his most recent novel. I hope you enjoy these amazing conversations. I'm excited to talk to you. Liberation Day is is here. You're a collection of essays that is out. Uh, we will get to that, but I, I have to ask, just from the jump, you've said that drinking coffee is one of your only habits. So I got to get, can we get down your coffee routine, particularly when you're writing? Yeah, I mean, one, incredibly low standards. So if it, even <laughs> if somebody just says it's coffee and it isn't, that's good enough. Uh, no, you know what, I, I, it's funny because what I do is now, uh, as a person of a certain age, the night before, I take a lot of pleasure in making the pot already. You know, it's, it's not anything special. It's just like <laughs> regular coffee. But there's something about about making it the night before and then going to sleep knowing that all I have to do is kind of stumble to it in the morning and hit the button. Yes. Uh, and then, you know, really, I don't, I'm not like a connoisseur at all. I, I mean, I, every so often I'll go, oh, this is really good. But uh, for me, it's kind of the, just the, the, the ritual of having the, the coffee. And then the other thing I notice is if I ever do something, like if I'm writing and I do something that I think is pretty good, I instantly reward myself by filling the cup the rest of the way up. You know, so it's yes. like a weird residual Catholic thing, I think, where, you know, <laughs> if I do something good, I, I'm not allowed to wallow in it, but I can go get a little bit of reward and then come back, you know. So. Do you do you sometimes time the coffee? Like if you have like a moment you need, because as a writer, I do this myself. If you need to like really like pump yourself up for like a, a moment or a 30 minute window, do you ever just go and t- take that shot of espresso or get that coffee? 
Well, the weird thing is, Matt, at this point, I don't even feel it. I can have a cup of coffee right before mm. bed. It doesn't. I think I've broken everything or broken something inside myself. So, uh, <laughs> but symbolically, yeah, you know, like if the, yeah, it's almost like you don't want to try a hard thing when the cup is in like in the lower third and it's cold. So yeah, there's certain, there, it's really funny. I, when I was finishing the Lincoln and the Bardo, I got in this weird routine of, um, I had these big pretzels, these kind of like old fashioned pretzels and also graham crackers. And oh, so yeah. I had those over at the house. And when I was, um, yeah, when I was kind of getting ready to take a run at something, I'd go over there and load up on carbs, you know. And, and uh, so it's not healthy. But. No, but it's it seems like a healthy snack. I have to say, not feeling coffee feels like a scene from, you know, a, a near future dystopic kind of scenario that you're, you know, quite, quite famous and proficient at writing. Yeah. I must say. It just means you have to do a lot more of the really hard drugs to, you know, to get up. Like, yeah. <laughs> Like six Hershey bars, for example. That, yeah. Do. yeah. I, I like the future where Hershey bars are like uh, like, like fentanyl, you know? Like yeah. that, that's, <laughs> no, that's, that's not good. That, that we no, do. sorry. That's not good. To be clear, that's more, more like, like for me, it's more like Metamucil, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, you live in Santa Cruz or part-time and, and you're a fan of Cat and Cloud. I have to shout those guys out. Yeah, they're wonderful. It's a great, it's a great coffee and it's a great atmosphere. And it's not, it's maybe, uh, you know, 10 minutes from our house. That's cool. And those guys, they do a great podcast and they're, they're definitely like leaders of the Santa Cruz coffee scene. So it's so cool that you, um, that you're there. So you're full-time California or, or most time California. Are you feeling, is there a food category that you want to dive into more that you're, you're, now that you're spending more time in California? You know, I, uh, I mean, we're no, to be honest, I mean, to be honest, we're, we're kind of like, I I've gotten down to where I'm almost like a monk. I just sleep like, like a little bit of muesli in the morning and some yogurt in the afternoon. And, yeah. and, eat. and there is a place actually right up the, right the, down the hill from us, there's a place called the Coralitos Market mm-hmm. and they make their own sausage right on site. And anytime you drive through there, it just smells incredible. So that's one uh, kind of guilty pleasure. If I, if I feel like I've earned it, I'll stop by there and have a big old, uh, you know, like a, a sausage and they, they kind of dress it Chicago style. So, and you, and you know, it's not, I'm sure it's not really good for you. I, I, I don't want to defame them, but, um, but it's, it's awesome, you know, and they, and they do everything right there in house and super nice guys. I love it. And when you say the word sausage, I, you're, you've got, you're saying in Chicago way, it reminds me of my father and my uncle. Like you've got this like way of saying it. So you, you know, what, that's so funny I feel deficient. I don't feel like I say it correctly. Cause there was my dad, when we were kids, he owned, um, two franchise restaurants on the South side called chicken unlimited. And we did a lot of catering for some of my most treasured, you know, memories of high school or working alongside my dad. But there was a couple of guys there who were somehow with the corporate franchise. I don't know what the deal was. But one of the guys was a real Chicago guy, kind of big, loved food, loved, Mm. you know, the counter on which the food had recently sat, loved the wrapper. I mean, he was such a such a fan. And he had a way of saying, uh he would explain how to make something in this really wonderful way that I can't exactly do, but he'd say like, George, <laughs> you got to take the sausage and then you put it on the count. No, not like that. Pick up the sausage again. You know, and everything he talked about that, no, 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 where's the sauce? You got to have <laughs> more sauce on it. So it's something about just listening to that guy made me hungry. And so he would kind of, he kind of taught us how to do these caterings. And I, I always remember that kind of like, the reverence, you know, like the love for it. And, and, yeah. uh, yeah. I love that uh, when Chicago food has, um, it's, it's, it's fans and there's this following, you know, for that we could talk about tavern pie. We could talk about obviously sausages or, or Italian beef. And I want to get your take. Like, 
Is there an iconic Chicago food that you feel is maybe not known outside of Chicago or, or given love? I mean, I don't think White Castle would be any big surprise to anybody, but I remember as a kid just unironically worshiping those little hamburgers, you know, like they were, mm-hmm. it was such a treat. And in our neighborhood, uh, it was, that was sort of a, a way for the grownups to announce that they were happy. We're going to get White Castle. And the other thing was, um, oh, what's the name of it? There's a pizza place, uh, a home run pizza. That's a mm. It was kind of out of the way. And it was maybe a little bit, at that time, it seemed like kind of pricey or something. But oh my God, when a, when a grown up said, we're going for home and pizza, that meant something good had happened. You know? Like some and, celebration. Yeah. And the kids would just huddle like, all right, they're happy. <laughs> Those big people are happy. That's awesome. You know, my dad had these restaurants. And so I cooked for him a while. And then when I got my license, my first real job was to be his delivery driver. <sighs> and uh, that was a, for a preacher writer, just the best because, you know, you were, like you'd go into all over the sort of Southwest side and you'd be just briefly invited into somebody's house, you know, just in the foyer. And they kind of would forget that you were there because you were just a delivery kid. And uh, just to have that little, you know, like sometimes two minute immersion into somebody else's life as it was in progress, you know, and it was so um, exactly like a short story, you know, you come in quick and you get out quick and you go, well, that was weird. You know, I delivering, I used to deliver furniture, George. And I have to so agree with you when you're getting these little slices of life, when you enter someone, the stuff you find in people's houses, something not be mentioned in the podcast. It's just, it's life. And it is, there are like little vignettes and short stories. It's interesting. Yeah. And there's something about the fact that they're not really factoring you in. So you're being overlooked, which isn't great, but, yeah. <laughs> but it means you literally are like a fly in the wall. There was one guy, he used to invite me in and we'd have the same conversation every time he'd say, uh, Hey kid, are you married yet? I'm like, <laughs> I'm 15. Oh, and then he'd give me this huge, um, kind of lecture on how marriage had ruined him. Oh my you know, goodness. All the great things he was going to do, but no, no. And then every time his wife would walk in the sweetest person kind of smiling. Oh, Jim, be quiet. You're boring him, you know? And, uh, so that was weird because I'd never seen somebody so kind of cynical, you know, bitter. Uh, and then also the way that she would kind of like, it didn't seem to bother her. And then the weirdest thing was to come back next week and have exactly the same thing happen, you know, for a kid. I mean, I was kind of an idealistic, um, dreamer kind of kid. And that really was, uh, it stayed with me, you know. Yeah, did it st- like did it become make you be, be a little more cynical about the world and like relationships and love? I mean, if you got this like adult telling you a, a, a kid of fifteen that he hates his life because of marriage, it's really obviously left an impression on you. It should have, but it actually made me wonder about him, you know, because uh-huh. she was so nice and and she didn't yeah. seem so. I it it definitely um, puzzled me, you know. But I didn't I didn't think oh note to self don't get married. I thought don't be that guy. You know, don't, if you ever get a chance, don't ever talk your marriage down and don't be, you know, <laughs> it's, don't, don't it's good advice. It, yeah. Keep it private. Uh, what was his order? Do you remember? What was he, what was he? No, I have no idea. Everybody <laughs> would just order like a big old bag of chicken. You know, that was kind yeah. of standard. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of celebrations, I would like to know a couple things. Let's take us back a little bit. Okay. So George, when you, what, when you signed your first book deal, how did you celebrate with food and drink? I don't remember. I do remember uh, there was when I sold my first short story after yeah. a long, a long, um, my wife and I took the check, which was probably $60 or, you know, something really small. And there was a little steakhouse. We were living in Pittsburgh, New York, and there was a beautiful little steakhouse right on the Erie Canal mm. that had been kind of beyond our, our grasp, you know. So we just took that check and then probably spent, you know, 
that much again mm-hmm. and just treated ourselves, you know. And and the other thing that when when I got our story in the New Yorker for the first time, uh, my wife made a big chicken dinner and she uh she'd gone around to like six or seven uh doctor's offices and collected up their New Yorkers with their permission. <gasps> and she made this kind of beautiful banner of New Yorker covers that she <laughs> she hung over the table. So I came in from work, there was this beautiful feast and then that that banner and and uh Paul and I and our two girls kind of Oh, that's so, this is like such a sweet memory and and the idea that she was going to doctor's offices and just soliciting them for the New Yorker covers. Yeah. I I love that. It was so sweet and it really meant, you know, I I remember it, you know, because it's it's funny when you get a success like that, I'm not somebody who celebrates overtly. I feel I'm a little too Catholic. Like I think that's a jinx, but to have somebody else do it and to, and to kind of go, oh, that's a nice, you know, nice way to mark this moment. It was beautiful. Take me back then to when you uh, when you won the Booker Award, the Booker Prize. Um, how did you celebrate then with food and drink? Well, I think uh, well, first of all, they had a beautiful meal which I was too nervous to eat, so that wasn't it. Uh, and I think if I remember it right, it was just late at night. Somebody from the book company was kind of guiding me back to the hotel, and we we found a fish and chips place. Oh, you know, I mean, it was and that f- fish and chips was like nothing I'd ever tasted before. And that feeling of you know all the tension had receded, uh, and you have that beautiful good news to kind of buoy you up a little bit, and then just you know settle into the meal and and. Uh, Again, a kind of a sideways celebration, you know, it wasn't like dancing on the tables, but it was. Well, no, I mean, that, yeah. and that's like kind of literary awards. It seems like dancing on the tables might not be, it might, that might be more for like, you know, a James Beard award, like a chef or something, but like a, like a author winning a book. I feel like you need to have like a pint and like a quiet corner or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny because those kind of things say I've in the moment there isn't in my experience, not much will make it better or worse, but it's that feeling that of, uh, having been honored and, you know, and, and, and then being emboldened. That's the thing that I, I think about like, okay, so now there's no excuse not to try the hardest things. Um, and then you take that with you in a kind of, you know, it's, it's forever really. It's great advice. I I, want to go back to your, your days in Texas. You, you worked, uh, as an oil prospector uh, drilling in Texas and, I want to know, I mean, I'm sure this time was uh, memorable to you. I think you probably have written about it. Now, what were the lunch breaks like with these guys, with these, with these, these oil, these oil guys, these prospectors? Yeah. So we were out, this, this was a particularly hot summer. It was, it was like 106 for eight days in a row or something. And just, I mean, cattle were dying in the oil fields and, you know, and on these ranches. So I think the, um, we would just sit. We would, they wouldn't let us into the, the air conditioned truck, so we would just sit. Uh, sometimes on a tailgate or just in the in the dirt, and uh, you know you would have packed your own lunch the night before. Uh, and you know it's funny. What I really remember is water, because you you weren't really um, at liberty to stop. We were we were putting out these geophones in these long lines, and you had to go really fast. Mm-hmm. So uh, when lunch came, that meant you could they had a big cooler on the back of the truck with ice in it. And so literally, I remember guys literally lying underneath it and having somebody open it and, and pour and into fall the on their face. Yeah. I mean, water was never so good. And uh, so I don't remember what the meals were, except that I do remember this. My dad at that time had moved into pizza restaurants. So he had a, a restaurant in Amarillo called uh, the Chicago Pizza Works and Speakeasy Lounge. It was kind of a uh, a really great pizza restaurant themed around like 1930s crime. <laughs> so wow. my dad would kind like of- Like Capone style? Yeah, no, there yeah. was some, There was a, a sandwich, you know, all Chicago style sandwiches. One was called an Al Capone and 
one was called a Frank Nitty. And, and my dad would, um, when he was feeling, really feeling it, he would, he would have a fake uh, Thompson submachine gun <laughs> that he would, when he seated you, he would carry the gun. So the, so the big treat was he had a, a thing that he had uh, picked up from a friend of his in Chicago called a stuffed pizza. So you, you made a kind of standard Chicago, very, very thin crust pizza with all the ingredients. Then you put another uh, crust over the top of it and you kind of crimped it down like you would a pie. Right. And then, so that thing is probably two inches thick. You cook that for 10 minutes, take it out again, retop it, and then put it in again and do another 10 or 15. And it was like eating a, I mean, it was sort of like a lasagna without noodles or something. And it was so good. So the, the big treat was um, sometimes I'd work there nights and then you'd grab a couple of the six slices and throw them in your lunchbox for the next day. So you'd be out there in the oil field with the the water and the pizza. That is going to keep you keep you rolling, though. Like this, like stuffed tavern pie, this like hybrid pie that I love that your father is serving in the Amarillo on the to the, to the people of Amarillo. That's like a great story. It was a great hit. I mean, there, literally, there were lines around the block the first the first six or seven months because it was. Uh, I mean, Chicago pizza was something they didn't know, and this was a particular kind of a variety of it that um, that he picked up. So it was really fun, and to be a kid, you know, a college kid, come home and. You know, see your dad's restaurant be a big hit. And as family, you're sort of minor celebrities because you're coming in out of the kitchen without asking permission. And did, so, yeah, I mean, did you, did you, did you read Larry McMurtry? Were you a McMurtry head? Uh, a little bit. I, not as much as I should be. You know, I love his work, but I, I, at that point, I think my yeah. vision of the West was more Kerouac, you know, kind of, uh, yeah. And, um, yeah, but McMurtry's a great writer. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the last picture show is is probably it's just a must. I feel like just for for scene setting of of, of certain Texas um yeah, milieu. Yeah. So, in 2005 you wrote a humorous essay for New York Times magazine Eat Memory, the absolutely know nothing diet. Okay, so this is I'm going to link to it in the show notes. I, I this is some classic uh George Saunders work. Um did the was a narrator inspired by a meal or a circumstance or was this just pure no you know i um at that time i was getting a lot of requests to do pieces about stuff that actually i didn't know anything about you know so I, and Ooh, yeah nice no, it is. and so then so food I, you know what's your favorite recipe i don't at that time i didn't really cook much of anything and so that was kind of my um i guess my usual response is to kind of take the question and try to not answer it you know try, try to uh, do something a little yeah. zen with it. But, uh, yeah, I, I think too, you know, for me, one of my, my, uh, abiding personality traits is I'm a real perfectionist and I have, I guess, like a lot of people, this idea that if I just do it right, I can kind of rise above all pain and suffering and ambiguity and conflict, you know? So, uh, whatever I've done in my life, I've always been kind of excessive about it. When I was, um, a weightlifter when I was young, I was working out six hours a day and, you know, I mean, writing, certainly I'm obsessive about and anything else. So that piece was kind of just a thought about, okay, let's, if, if we take this idea of dieting, you know, to its logical extreme and that feeling of like, every time you put something in your body, you're contaminating yourself. Well, you know, th then we end up there. Yeah. It's what a thought experiment to like have a, a, a narrator and not eat anything and have that be the diet of nothing. And, and kind of you writing around this prompt. I mean, that you got about probably, I would imagine the editor was like, write something about diets or something like that. I would imagine. Or but food. you know, the other thing, I didn't, I never made this connection until just now, but somewhere around that time, either before or just after I went to Nepal 
and I uh, was on an assignment to cover this kid that they were calling Buddha Boy. And he had supposedly run away from his monastery, disappeared, and they found him in the jungle uh, meditating against a tree. And when I went out there, supposedly he hadn't had any food or water for like seven months or something. So, you know, it was a great adventure. You, 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 t- you fly, you take a train, you, you drive, and you're in the middle of, the, of uh, this, you know, beautiful rainforest. And there's this kid, and he's sitting out there. And in the time he'd been sitting there, his hair went from a buzz cut to shoulder length. And so the idea was kind of like figure out what the scam is. And then from being out there, it appeared that there wasn't a scam from what I could tell. The, you know, everybody around him was very reverent and his best friend was out, was out there and he said, I don't. This wasn't a pure. No, no, it was. I mean, as far as I could tell, it was it was, you know, that's kind of the, the takeaway from the pieces. I have no idea, but it's not a it's not a grift. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I have questions about this. So when you were out in Nepal. Uh, and you're communicating with Buddha Boy. Is this a conversation um, that he is, is he leading you towards um, like a conclusion or is he just like minding his own business? No, there's no conversation. He, he was actually oh. uh, uh, separated from, there were huge throngs coming out to see him. Uh, and so there were two barbed wire fences between you and him. So the, the gist of the story is I got this permission to spend one night out there with him. So maybe, maybe a hundred, I don't know, 200 feet away from him and he's not moving. I mean, we, our photographer was out there and he showed me these pictures, uh, taken over an eight hour period. There's no motion detectable in this kid at all. So, so really there was kind of a one-sided conversation, which was me, we are me with my mind sitting over there going, what the hell's going on? You know, <laughs> how is he not eating? And why is nobody sneaking in there to feed him? And why is my mind so busy? And why is it that I'm sitting here for three minutes and I feel like standing up? And, Which you know. is such a tenet of like new journalism. You know, Frank Sinatra has a cold kind of method, like being able to write around and write in your emotions. And do you, do you yeah. find that you go there sometimes with some of your more your nonfiction, your reported work? Yeah. And in this case, there was no choice because there really yeah. wasn't any input. It was just me and my feelings about him, you know. Yeah. Um, but then that ended up being kind of a beautiful way of thinking about monkey mind, you know. Because there I was sitting in the jungle and boy, my mind was, it didn't stop for a second, you know. Do you, you do immersive journalism. You've, you've spent a week on Skid Row in Los Angeles and, and, and you, you're involved, some would call it gonzo journalism. I'm not sure if I love that term, but it thinks it, it resonates with people. Now, let me ask you, have you pitched or been, been uh, you know, approached to do a food related, uh, more of this exper- experiential journalism, embedded journalism? Um, no, I have not. I have not. Most, you know, most of these I pitch uh, to either to GQ and then to, to the New Yorker, uh, but I have not. So, so are you compelled? I mean, would you want to, you know, Bill Buford's Heat comes to mind, which is a great nonfiction work about spending time in the kitchen uh, in Italy. I mean, have you thought about focusing on food? I, I, you know, you, you said your diet is pretty monkish yourself now, so maybe food isn't that important. But I, I wonder if you think of it as a rich topic. Well, you know, what's, what is rich to me right now is... Um, Kind of like this. Okay, so I'm 63 years old, and I've been in a mad dash uh, my whole life to pretty much do one thing, which was to, you know, try to figure out how to write a good short story. And then also, of course, to have a, a family and, and be be a good father and husband. But um, it's only now occurring to me that I kind of miss some stuff, you know, so like, yeah. and I you know, and I'm a big fan of, of uh, you know, just various cooking shows and so on. So the idea that um, I know this one thing, which is writing. 
And I know it in incredible detail in terms of process, you know, and, and it's amazing to things, as you know, from being a writer, you, you, the things you learn, tiny little useless things about your own mind when writing, uh, it's really rich. And so for the first time, I'm like, wow, it's interesting. That must be analogous to so many other things in the world at which people are good, you know, so, so cooking, uh, you know, how, how is it that the intuition gets in there? You know, for me in writing the, the big revelation has been that there's a part of the mind that is there when you're editing, especially that's very, very precisely judgmental. It knows just, just what it's like. So my theory is a really good piece of writing is the result of these t- thousands, maybe tens of thousands of micro decisions that you make at speed, changing this sentence, moving this phrase and so on. And I've, I've, the, the real blessing of being a writer is that I really believe in that part of the mind now. It's so powerful. You know, this intuitive, spontaneous part of the mind that is not about conceptualizing or reducing or articulating. So I'm, I find myself really curious to talk to people in other fields mm. to see how intuition has served them, you know. Cooking is such a great cognitive. It's so relevant. My take would be that when you are a proficient or even an, an, an amateur home cook, your intuition your like motor memories, what we call, because re- we're talking about a physical thing. We're talking about like actually using your muscles to do something like chop shallots. Your intuition is always firing. But to your point, you're making tens of like a thousand decisions that you are second guessing. You're, you're, mm-hmm. There's like microaggressions against, against yourself about your, your confidence. I mean, I think cooks, home cooks of all levels have this kind of level of self-doubt. I mean, even professionals, I'm sure. So I think it's, I really agree with you. There's, there's, this would be an yeah. interesting text. It's interesting because, you know, what I find is part of writing then is to say, okay, I'm going to always, I, I always talk about this idea that you have a meter in your head with P for positive on one side, N for negative the other. As you're reading your own prose, that needle is moving, mm-hmm. you know? So part of the job is when it's in the positive, leave it alone. When it drops into the negative to kind of gently prod at that place to try to get the needle to come up. In other words, what don't I like about this? But the, the interesting thing to what you're saying is that that meter is not completely reliable. It, you know, it, it gives you different readings every day. So in what I do, it's in writing, it's you come back to it day after day after day after day. And the idea is that over time, your reaction stabilizes. And in the meantime, you've had literally hundreds of versions of yourself that have weighed in. So grouchy you has weighed in, fastidious you has weighed in joyful you has weighed in and so the idea is that by the end of it the story is sort of like the sum total of the best parts of you Hmm. and it achieves a kind of wit or in my case humor or even sometimes wisdom that you personally don't have you know so that so i would love to talk to chefs about that question like how is it that how is it that you're uh the most amazing meal you've ever served how did that come about you know, what's, what's the combination of, of intuition and luck and um, consciousness and so on? Well, I think, I think of making salad. One, the 1,000 salads you've made in your life, how many, like, intuition takes over at some point. There's a grouchy you who've made, who's made a salad. There's the optimistic you who's made a salad. I, I don't know. I'm, like, stuck on salad. I don't know why I'm thinking about this. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's, George, is a cool point, and I, I feel like, uh, I encourage you to pursue this this work. I would yeah. love to read it. <laughs> well, but you know, and it's, and it's even like we were watching a movie about rock climbing last night, and the, one of the things was you're not thinking, you know, you're you're just reacting. And so I, I think you know, there's um, so many 
in our in our world right now, there's so much emphasis on linear, rational, often reductive thinking. There's certainly a big emphasis on people having strong opinions quickly. You know, maybe maybe because of the internet or, or social media. But in writing, I I love the idea that you can have a series of opinions slowly. Uh, you can get all of yourself in there to think it through. Uh, and it makes a kind of a spaciousness that I really, really mm -hmm. like. And when I've talked to, to some friends who are really good cooks or to chefs, you always feel that there's an openness about it. You know, that process has made them more confident, maybe not more confident in their spot judgment, but maybe more confident in their cumulative judgment or something like that. In a thing at work from your recent collection, Liberation Day, you reference custom mustards. And I, I think... Uh, it's like a sign of snobbery in the character. Um, I have to ask you deep down, do you think it's okay to like have three types of mustard in your, in oh, your yeah. fridge? Uh, yeah, and she's not, actually, that woman is self-judging. She, she's projecting that someone will think that about her. Yes, of so, course, you know, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think, yeah, that's, and then, you know, the other thing in that story, there's the other side of it, that one of the characters is uh, complaining about her life, and she says, you know, all these people are going out for lunch, and I just get a, you know, a slice of an apple and a piece of cheese, you know? So this, in that story, I think the idea of, um, you know, what foods do you have access to? Uh, and that was for me, you know, when I was working, I worked a lot of, of jobs and, uh, several of them that <laughs> what I remember is that I couldn't afford a meal or I had to grab something from home. There was a, there was a run where I was a, a doorman in Beverly Hills and, I actually got into the habit of taking uh, potatoes, uncooked potatoes out of the fridge that didn't belong to me uh, to, you know, to eat them at lunch. You know, it was that, it was that kind of thing. And so then when you'd see somebody yeah, who lived in the apartment building come in with a beautiful salad or something, you'd, you'd, it was bitter, you know? Yeah, it, it was like <laughs> a real sense of reality, like a, a moment of reality. You know, I have to say the Olive Garden leftovers moment in that story. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's like, that's dark. Like the, 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 <laughs> the, the coworker just like dropping a, a plate of leftovers from Olive Garden on, on her coworker's desk. Well, it's actually, and it's actually even worse because it's been wrapped up in one of those tinfoil swan yes. shapes, you know, that's the, that, that's right. Yeah. You, 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 that's just, that's a great little moment there where you're, you're painting this picture of the swan shaped. <laughs> no, but uh, I remember that, you know, I worked at a, a similar place and I remember, you know, we were young, uh, had our kids and we didn't have a lot of money. So there was a real, uh, kind of tension around lunch for me, you know, that you, you, um, it, it was literally close enough to the bone for us that if, you know, to have $15 for lunch or 10 was, you know, not, you didn't. So it, it was, um, you know, when you think about, about life and about class and about working, mm -hmm. that's a moment when, as noon grows close, uh, you know, it, it, people handle it in different ways and it's, it can be very, uh, I remember when I was in a doorman, there was a, a food truck that would come up beside, behind the condo in Beverly Hills and they had the most amazing pastrami sandwiches, best I've ever tasted. But they were, you know, this was in the eighties and they were maybe $7 or something, you know, and it was a very precise amount, seven twenty nine after taxes. And so I really remember certain days where I had seven twenty. you know, <laughs> and you're like, where yeah. the hell are nine pennies, you know, going to. Back before we had Square and, and Apple Pay, right? It's a different yeah, generation. Yeah, right, right. Was, yeah. Well, you're you're giving these memories of Los Angeles, and 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 when you were living in Los Angeles, are you are you hitting taco trucks? Are you are you on the East Side? Um, like paint the picture of Los Angeles during your your time. At there. that time, uh, we were well, we were crashing with a friend in Santa Monica, which got tense after a while. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, Tommy's, the cheeseburger uh, place, was amazing. 
And then also somebody taking us downtown to, um, yeah, um, El Salvador and Taco so that were being sold on the street that were just off the charts. Uh, and then there was also, you know, it's, you know how sometimes you get far enough away from something, you're not sure if you maybe dreamed it, but there was a place, uh, very eighties kind of place that was sort of like if Devo had a restaurant, you know, oh, if, sign like, me up. Yeah. And all the waiters sort of dress like that. And I, I, I remember they also were kind of encouraged to be a bit robotic and the food all had kind of Jetson like names, you know, I, I have no idea where that was or if that, if that was, but Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's like Michael McCarthy or Wolfgang Puck or, I mean, who's doing this, this space age robotic? I mean, it sounds almost like a version of Los Angeles that was painted in like TV and film back yeah. in the 80s, right? Like right. And, LA Story, like Steve Martin. No, and it, it just is sort of like, um, okay, so it was almost like if you took classic American diner, but then set it in tw- the year 2300, that's kind of what wow. they had in mind, you know? But, it's, but, it's, but honestly, for that time, what I remember most is just that... Uh, but like getting into town the first day and somebody taking us somewhere for Way West Ranchero's and it was so delicious and also so kind of perfect for the place and uh, kind of exotic, you know. But but the real thing I remember is the kind of the question of where the, you know, where's the next, what's the next meal going to look like and how do we, how do we get it? And, you know, the feeling of paucity really, which is, you know, especially bitter in L.A. Yeah. Did you read Jonathan Gold at all when you were there? No, I did not. No, I didn't get to read Jonathan. Um do you read cookbooks? I mean, I have to ask, we, we have a lot of cookbook authors on the show, and I, I want to know is, you know, between your, your academic work and your own writing, you probably don't have a lot of time, but do you read cookbooks? I really don't. I mean, I'm sorry to be a bummer, but I'm... No, no, it's good. I, no. Yeah, I, I have... Uh, with, my life is... is uh, it, it requires an incredible amount of time at the desk. I, I wish it didn't. I wish I was a little more... And, and it's one of my kind of regrets right now is that I'm I'm not living a particularly full life. I'm not like a big hiker. I don't, you know, so, but, but for whatever reason, the, the, the writing projects are so interesting and they take so much time that I've kind of just said, well, that that's, that's it. I mean, George, it sounds like you're living your truth and, and it doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound like you're regretting it. I mean, it, it, you might want to do hiking, but you love writing so much. So why? Yeah, I feel you? like I should regret it and, and <laughs> kind of getting to the point of, yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hiking is overrated. Let's just like, we'll like say it right now on the show. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, I, I just think it's, thank you for sharing that and being honest about it because I feel like we, we try to project like we want to live this ideal life, especially, you know, moving from New York to California. Like you want to like be a hiker. You want to, you know, have a definitely like three or four different kind of box delivery co-op deals happening. And of course, at the farmer's market, but that's not how we live our lives, right? Yeah, we, although we, my wife and I have been riding uh, our bikes to the Brentwood Farmer's Market, and that's kind of opening my eyes. We, we get some incredible mushrooms there. That I, and, I, and I'm the kind of guy who'd be like, you know, a mushroom is a mushroom. Uh, no, the, these mm. mushrooms are, you can put them in anything and it makes it better. But I, I, yeah, you know, the, it's interesting to, um, maybe a little bittersweet to get to a point where you're like, okay, this life has been about the short story, you know, and, and um, okay, so if you want to see that through to the end, you have to really uh, make some sacrifices. You know, you have to really uh, sort of admit to yourself that it gives you deep pleasure to be in the middle of a story, no matter how, you know, no matter how much it blocks out everything else. And it's a strange, I think, in, in our time where I think the illusion is that one should have it all or that the, you know, the well-lived life is the goal. Um, kind of exciting to me to think, well, maybe the well-lived life is an incredibly obsessive one, you know, 
with one focus. And then through that life, everything is there, really. But it, it does run a little bit counter to what you sometimes feel you should be doing. Love Letter. Uh, Love Letter is an epistolary. It's 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 one of my favorite pieces in the in the new collection. And you really tackle how generations communicate with each other, how a grandfather communicates with a grandson as a world tilts toward authoritarianism. And I, I guess the format was interesting, like a handwritten letter. How, what are you playing with in this uh, in this in this work? Well, I mean, honestly, I had uh, an experience. This was right before the, the last election. So, you know, I was really uh, engaged and upset. And, and um, so I had one extended conversation with somebody from my larger family who's quite to the right of me. And it got a little heated, but, you know, it's family. And then another conversation with a couple of young people I know who uh, were to the left of me, which is kind of hard to do, but they were, also got a little heated. Mm. And um, so then at the end of that, you're kind of not, you're reminded that you don't really know where you are politically, actually. It's, it's you know, it's kind of transient. But also was reminded of how deeply satisfying those kind of conversations are if they don't spin into rage, you know. <laughs> and in both of the cases, there was enough love there and, and respect that, you know, it could be sort of heated in a way that I remember fondly from Chicago. You know, you could you could fight with somebody uh, as long as you bring it back home at the end. So that was kind of on my mind. I thought, let me try to write these feelings I'm having. I'll put them in somebody else's head. But for starters, it's going to be my head. So I'm going to write to this imaginary grandson uh, about my conflicted feelings about what's happening and, and whether or not I'm involved enough in pushing against these, this autocratic tilt. Uh, so that was really the first impulse, just to try to write what I actually felt, which for me is kind of unusual. Usually I'm kind of inhabiting somebody, but um, so I, I just started doing that, writing to a grandson that I felt very fond of mm. um, and kind of confessing basically this here's, here's how I feel. And the one slant I put on it was that this is now some years in the future um, you know, the, the, the forces, the anti-democratic forces have won big time. Well, oh yeah. He's like, there's like very much concern. The letter will be found by, right. by, by an unknown government. Right. Right. So sometimes with fiction, you're, you're really just telling your story, but you maybe put one weird thing in it. You know, that was kind of the <laughs> Kafka approach. It's, it's everything's normal except, you know, ducks can talk. <laughs> and then the idea is by, by taking that concept very seriously, you are eventually going to refract light back on the way things actually are now. No, so, so in this one, the idea is, okay, now it's all, it's, a, it's done. It's done. We are definitely not a democracy anymore and we're all living in the, the ruins. And this guy is kind of saying, well, let me explain to you, beloved grandson, how we got here and what my part in it was. Well, your love of li Russian literature is, is very profound and clear in this, in this piece. And it, it seems your, your point is, is, is clear. I, I have to say, I say the epistolary that comes to mind, older author writing to a younger, younger man is uh, Beverly Cleary's Dear Mr. Henshaw. Are you familiar with this work? No, I'm not, but I will be. Yeah, well, I got to say, third shout out to Miss Cargill in third grade. Put it in my hands. I just gave it to my nephew. It's an epistolary. It's <laughs> I, I just had to bring it up. It, it got me thinking about this this work. Well, it's it's a great form because presumably, you know, it, it's private. You know, if I write you a letter, exactly. that's between you and me. So that uh, allows for a real honesty, uh, person to person. Plus, you get the kind of, you know, uh, elevated diction that you can use in a letter that you might not use in person. So it's kind of a, a nice way to sort of look behind the curtain and see what a person is really thinking. And in this case, um, 
one of the things that interests me about the story that I didn't plan at all was that the, the grandfather actually starts to change his mind as he gets deeper into it, just subtly, you know. And so that was a fun thing to try to convey that he he's coming off a little bit like cautiously uh, urging his grandson not to get political, keep your head down. And by the end of it, he's almost talked himself out of it, uh, sort of by the, you know, by you think maybe by rereading his own letter, he's like, wait a minute, I don't know if I really believe that. I like that 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 moment. It strikes me, yeah. The that that moment of, of, of realization. Um, several people are typing. Comes to mind, uh, Calvin Kosolki. I think that's how you say his name. It's a it's an epistolary through the Slack channel. I don't know if you're familiar with this. No, <laughs> I'm pretty much not familiar with any work. It appears. <laughs> no, no, uh, I'm I'm not trying to I'm not trying to stunt here. I I, I just had to say this idea of the uh, epistolary and, and written like letters or texts or Slack channels. Um, to your point, I, I think it's so so powerful when uh, we uh, we don't think anyone's reading. You know, we're saying what we want to say, right, right? Right. George, I have to know cooking. Are you are you doing it at home? Are you are you ordering in? What what's what's the situation like? Well, I um, we my wife and I have tried, and I'm not too good as we tried to split the cooking lately. So that meant that I had to learn. So I I do a pretty good. Um, like a, a beet soup, uh, and I just got a minestrone down. And so oh, cool. I try, I'm trying to, you know, carry my weight. I'm not, she's a really wonderful cook, so it seems sometimes like, you know, why should I bother except to be helpful, you know? So I'm, I'm learning. I'm, I'm, I'm learning a few things. But, um, yeah, and I think we're uh, – we, we, we just bought a little apartment in L.A., so the temptation to order out is is really strong since we're both writing. Um, but, we're, we're, you know, it's, we just are real improvisers. We just improvise and – whatever shows up we you know for a while there, during the pandemic we were the, the idea was to make a soup and then basically just eat it until you couldn't anymore you know so you couldn't bear it anymore yeah it's it's definitely um in my household we we make like chicken bastu and it'll be like day four and we're like should we or shouldn't we should we it's almost like a yeah, challenge yeah, right yeah it's uh well i mean you know honestly with, when both of us are working uh it's really just sustenance like let's you know how how can we um Sometimes we joke because it feels like the idea is let's turn this day around and get the next one started as soon as possible. <laughs> you know, because we've both been working for 10 hours and we're fascinated by what we're doing. And uh, so dinner is kind of like, let's just, you know, take the path of least, least resistance. It's just pure nourishment. Yeah, I, I, I write my, yeah, I absolutely know what that means. And do you think, do you think actually writing burns calories? Like, like oh, running? Like I think running? 100%. You know, after a good day, I'm just uh, exhausted and um, all mental, all mental activity. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, but it, I mean, it burn. I mean, you you need sustenance. Like you need. It's like a, you're running a marathon every single yeah, day. Yeah. Especially, I think you know, with fiction, there's there's um there's the writing part, but then there's also I don't know what you would call it, but to me, the key skill is to um, separate yourself from what you've just written, so you can see it the way a first time reader might. And that's a real. I mean, that's not something you can will yourself to do exactly. It it, it does take a certain kind of energy and then for me it also sometimes means i have to disrupt that sitting at the desk and go do something else just even something very mm -hmm. minor then you come back to it and just marginally more able to see what you've done apart from your sort of pre-existing attachment to it does leaving the desk sometimes include coffee oh yeah for sure <laughs> yeah or even if i run out then i have to go to cat and cloud and get some more and then that's even better yeah you have to go to cat <laughs> oh yeah those guys I, I, we gotta we gotta shout them out again cat and cloud George Saunders, we ask all guests on the Taste Podcast. 
if there was a dream food book or cookbook project that you could work on, without the burden of time, meaning you do not have a deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you don't you have unlimited funds to make this book happen, I'd love to know what book would you write? Well, it's probably been written, but I, what fascinates me is, okay, uh, as somebody who's written some historical fiction, I'm really interested in uh, the way that a house, for example, would have smelled in 1862 that that we can't imagine. You know, the things that are present in the house that we don't have anymore, or the uh, you know the, the methods of cleaning that haven't been discovered yet. And included in that, I would love to. Um, look at a really typical household in say 1862 and live through a week in the culinary life of that house. You know, in, in the same way that we were just talking about what do they, what's dinner? Um, mm-hmm. How long does it take? Who did it? And especially like, how does, how does it taste different from the food that we eat now? Because, you know, when you're, when you're writing about the past like that, you, you really are trying to imagine on that level, the micro level, you know, what do the shoes feel like? Uh, you know, what, what's the uh, kind of traffic pattern in the house and so on. So I think the, you know, the, the idea that whatever our house smelled like just before dinner time wow. was probably not what we would expect. It's probably totally different. And conversely, if they could come, you know, and, and, and come into a house in which someone had just microwaved a breakfast burrito, it would probably freak them out. You know? <laughs> I, w- I, I was just thinking microwave popcorn. Like if, if like somebody came from like 1862 and got, came into a house and it was like a microwave popcorn in a microwave, that would I mean, be crazy. It would wow. be like, you know, I remember when we were kids in Chicago, my, my uh, grandparents lived over uh, on the south side, 50, 55th in California. And there was a mm. closet when you first came in. And as kids, we were so fascinated by it because all the men at that time were wearing overcoats. And so the ritual hanging up of the overcoat and the placing of the hat on a shelf. And the, people would um, put these things, mothballs, you know into the closets to discourage moss. And it had such a crazy smell, almost like a food smell, which is dangerous. And, 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 um, but that whole thing now is vanished, you know? So if you were writing a book about 1962, that was a very real thing, you know, that not only doesn't exist anymore, but how would you know, you know, and, and especially how would you know the smell of it? So that would be, that would be interesting, you know, the, it's very, George, it's interesting because it's like so many of these products were probably extremely toxic and killing these people oh, yeah. at the time, you know, like cleaning supplies from 1950. Well, I know there were stories that kids would eat these mothballs because they look great. They look like, like jawbreakers. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. George Saunders, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much. I had a great time. You're a depth observer of online culture, celebrity shenanigans, social media, and food, the, the consumed, cooked, and projected via social media channels type of food. Hmm. I really wanted to know, what gets, what gets you excited about food culture today? I like the fact that anyone can sort of just open a little tiny place and it can become a gigantic hit. Um if I lived in Portland, Oregon, I was just in Portland for my book tour and I was just eating from truck to truck. I mean, that's a very developed truck culture. Uh, but I think my favorite place in New York last year was the Birialandia 
taco truck, which is from um, from Tijuana originally, the kind of food originates, and it's a beautiful, sloppy, wet taco that you dip into consomme. So, you know, you buy a taco, you buy a consomme, and even though your taco's sort of like falling apart because it's just brisket, it's just bathed in soup, and you're just dipping it into more soup. And I mean, it's it's indecent. It's, did you it's find an indecent that, proposal. Did you find that on TikTok? Because honestly, the Berea trend... Was yeah. was real on TikTok. It was a real thing. I am not a tick, ticker talker. Uh, <laughs> I am on the gram. So I'm, a, okay. you know, it takes me usually 10 years to, to find a trend. <laughs> I just got rid of my MySpace. Um, oh, I am. congratulations. I have, yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, just, you know, it's just, there's nothing on it. Uh, but you can still find me at Hotmail and, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, I, I was seeing it pop up on Instagram. And then I have a friend who's sort of like my bloodhound. And he's always, and he, um, he spends the whole day just basically walking around the city eating, um, and he he said, you got to go to uh, Flushing, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, it's so far. And then finally <laughs> they opened a, a truck in Williamsburg, so I went oh, across yeah. the river. I'm scared of subways because I'm claustrophobic, so when mm-hmm. I have to get to the <laughs> when I have to get to the uh, the boroughs from Manhattan, I take a ferry. And a lot, and the ferry often drops me off right where the good food is, like Sunset Park and uh, uh, Astoria or LIC, Long Island City, or anything like that. So I've been hopping around, uh, eating from place. Did to you place. ferry here? We're in Midtown Manhattan at the Penguin Random House office. I walked here, so I, oh. I live downtown, so I walked to Midtown. I try to also walk like six miles a day because I eat so much that yeah. um, if I don't walk for like two and a half hours, it's just it's not going to be good, you know. So we met, I say met, quote, because we just met today face-to-face, but we we emailed maybe like six years ago when you blurbed very kindly my cookbook, Koreatown. Yeah, yeah that was um, the tastiest book I've ever blurbed. It was amazing. Thank yeah. you for that. Sure. And and uh, Our Country Friends has uh, a real distinct Korean thread there. There's two main characters mm. who, are, who are Korean. Yeah. And you write um, very vividly about Korean culture and Korean food. And I just wanted to know, like from the jump, how do you bring this distinct Korean flavor to your writing, which you've had in many of your novels? <laughs> I am surrounded by Korean Americans. That friend I just mentioned, the bloodhound, the, you know, <laughs> who goes around. He's Korean American. My wife's Korean American. My kid, I guess, is half Korean. Um, yeah. My mentor Chang Rae Lee, the author of many great books, was Korean American. Uh, two of my best friends. It just goes on and on. So I and, and I went to a high school that was very. Um, there were a lot of kids from immigrant backgrounds like my own. I was born in Russia in the Soviet Union, and there were a lot of kids from Korea, India, China, etc. cetera. Uh, and so, I've, you know, people were just sitting around eating kimbap, you know, which is a kind of lunch dish with uh, rice and seaweed. It's like, a, it's like a roll, but it's very substantial, and you can stuff it with anything. I've had, like, foie gras kimbap somewhere. Oh, over uh, David uh, Momofuku? Yeah, Momofuku, that's yeah, right. Yeah, that, that yeah, would be it. That would be it, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, and when I go to Seoul, I, I have a lunch, you know, I just... It's such a cheap but incredibly filling lunch. So uh, all that culture has always been marinating, kind of like the beef. Uh, <laughs> and one of my favorite restaurants, which was in Koreatown, just closed recently, Marangusai, which... Do you know that place? It's, it's uh, They did micro-brisket. They did a kind of thick ribeye. Uh, it was really very delicious. Sunwon Garden? No. Marangusai, um, I think Changri or somebody, some Korean-American took me there, and it was... 
They did a really great job. I was very sad that the pandemic killed them. Um, oh, that's sorry. I didn't didn't know that one. And yeah, what else do you like in thirty five and thirty two here in the city? Um, you know, I, I think I like some of the stuff a little closer to me in downtown. Like I like Atomix is oh, great. Yeah. I love Coat the Steakhouse. Sure. Um, that's a really beautiful piece of beef. Um, yeah, the last time I went to Seoul, this billionaire friend of mine took me out to like this pretty unassuming steakhouse, but it was like, you know, everyone, all the heads of the Chebol, the, you know, the, oh, yeah, the, the companies, the Chebols, they were all eating this really delicious steak that's been marinated in cognac for years and, you know, it was just... <gasps> Just Gary, that sounds rad, man. Yeah, it really Cognac marinated bulgogi? Uh, or yeah, kalbi bulgogi. Yo, man. Yeah, yeah. I so, love So I was just there last year in November. What a city. I feel like no one is writing about it vividly. Yeah. I feel like, what do you what do you think? Have you Will you set a novel there? I, I would love to. Um, you know, I've written, so I did a piece a long time ago for Travel and Leisure where I kind of ate my way around Seoul. And then I did a really weird piece for the Smithsonian Magazine where I, <laughs> I researched robots in Korea. So I went yeah. from like one robot manufacturer to another and... Uh, and but also ate my way through it too. I went to the opposite coast. You know, Incheon is on one coast, and mm-hmm. can't remember what the town was on the other side. But they Pohong, really, yeah, maybe, maybe that sounds kind of familiar. And, and crab was one of their specialties. Yeah, they had a lot of crab stuff, uh, like a cr- crab bibimbap, which was incredible. oh, yo, that sounds good. I feel like um, Seoul will have um, its Tokyo moment. Yeah, I hope so. At some time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, because it's kind of a it's a huge city. Obviously, I mean, so is Tokyo, but it's uh, you know the the subway connect. It really the metro connects it really nicely. You can be anywhere in twenty minutes, you know, because it's such a fast, wonderful subway. So you can really eat your way through that town too, and and the great uh, food stands too. So, so your character Ed, who is Korean American uh, or Korean, I'm unsure if it's Korean, 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 with, Korean, right, with, right, right? But he has British, UK, uh, sorry, UK, Swiss, and Canadian citizenship. That's right, He's a real That's citizen of the world, yeah. a real slasher, yeah. yeah. But Ed um, has this amazing line: um, "The world needs another Mediterranean cookbook." Like, I need another ulcer. It's so fun. <laughs> I, I wonder, do you believe personally in that sentiment? And then the second part is, do you, like, what is the cookbook that we do need? So here's the thing, and, and I'll be I'll be completely blunt. Uh, I eat like a maniac. And, you know, if you follow me on Instagram, at Steinger, or, or Twitter, or anything, all I'm doing is eating, you know. And then I walk six miles or I swim for two hours to try to keep some of that weight off. But that's all I do. But I do not know how to freaking cook. At all. I don't know how to boil water. The last time I did, you know, the water exploded somehow. I, don't know, I caused like a Chernobyl-type thing in my kitchen. Everything was, you know, and it's funny. Upstate where I spent half the year, we have the – a chef used to own the house. So there's this like incredible – I don't know how many range – burner range with 12 burners. 12? Okay. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, I can't even count them. I don't know. There's a lot of burners. I don't know what the hell's going on. There's all these buttons. It's like a, yeah. you know, airplane cockpit to the – baking oven you can put an entire pig in there but it's completely lost on me and my wife thankfully cooks a little bit but you know we're all very busy so there's a lot in new york i just eat out all the time but um uh upstate we do sometimes cook for christmas or something for friends and so we'll put you know throw in a pig or a moose or i mean do you feel though that you have a sense of the cookbook world like i mean i know you're not a home cook but you are you write books i do no i I mean you know i enjoyed your book quite a bit i enjoyed another book uh and i recently ate there in Portland, uh, Kachka, which is an amazing, you know, Russian food. Look, I'll be honest. It's not my favorite food, even though I grew up there. Uh, it's not very spicy. It's kind of, everything's boiled and kind of 
a lot of sour cream and butter. It's not my favorite, but uh, they do an incredible job, kind of hipster mm-hmm. Russian cuisine, really great. And they wrote a very funny kind of book also, you know, um, going at one of their, you know, just like in Europe book. Somebody has some of the heritages from there and they, and they get to contribute. So I do love to read those books. Like I can read them, you know, and they're fun, but there's got to be a narrative to it too. So it's not just, you know, oh, now, now we're going to cook this, or we're going to cook yeah. that. Uh, but uh, my wife is a really good cook, so I often buy her uh, cookbooks. For me, the more interesting stuff is sort of, if I were to attempt cooking, it would be, I guess I would go to like the Mark Bittman land. Yeah. Uh, I think he also lives upstate. Um, and he, He's, you know, yeah, he's down uh, in, in Cold Spring, Cold I think. Spring, right, yeah, right, right. Yeah. So he's a little bit north, uh, south of me. Yeah. But, um, uh, I'm more in the Rhinebeckian. Yeah, yeah you're in the Rhinebeck land. I live upstate as well in Orange yeah. County. Yeah. So we can we can debate who has the better food. <laughs> it's funny. There, <laughs> there used to be like a lot of, yeah, east, east, you know, like east coast, west coast. It was like east side of the river, west side of the river. But even now I admit that Kingston right now has the best food scene. And that's a, you know, that's a town of about 26,000 people and a lot of Brooklynites have fled there to the point where when I was getting my license renewed uh, during the pandemic, this woman came out and was like, in the DMV and was like, no Brooklyn people. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how uh, Kingston does have incredible bakery and, and oh. pizzas up there is very good. The pizza's good. Lola's Pizzeria is yep. great if you try that. And they also yes. the Kinsley, the Hotel Kinsley has a beautiful restaurant. Ah, an I don't old know. bank. And uh, food is really spectacular. Well, this is an endorsement for Kingston and paid for by the Kingston Bureau. Yeah, the Kingston Bureau of uh, um, Eatings. Speaking of, you're not a home cook, but you can write food scenes beautifully. Yes. And and yeah. I want to call out the Tonado and Snap yeah. scene. Yeah. Um, I, I really, anybody, I hope our listeners have read your book, Our Country Friends. It's worth it just for that recipe. <laughs> <laughs> the recipe. So is this scene based on any kind of recipe because it's written in a way that clearly you cooked it once when you were writing. I didn't cook it, but a ah. good friend of mine cooked it. So I often, so the, you know, our country friends, the conceit is that everyone, this, this Russian writer, <laughs> where'd I come up with that, right? Yeah. He has all his <laughs> friends who are all fleeing the pandemic during the start in March 2020. They all come up to his house and everyone takes turns cooking dinner and stuff like that. So, um, and I do something similar. I have, uh, during the summer, I invite a lot of my friends from the city to come up. Um, and I have a lot of friends who live there full time, but everyone kind of takes place, takes turns grilling or cooking. And so um, my friend, James Beluyat, who uh, is a rock musician with a band, uh, used to be in a band called Versus. Now I think it's the Plus Minus Band. Mm. Really great band. Versus and, Rules, man. Yeah, Versus Rules, What right? a great band. It's a great band. Oh, yeah, damn. Yeah, yeah. Nice, nice reference. Nice reference, right? Yeah, so I've known him. Way back in the day, when I think verses it was it was still called verses, uh, and so I invited him up a couple of years ago, and he made this incredible vitello tonnato, which I love. But he used you know snap peas, which I didn't know, and I think he got the he, I think he said he got the recipe from somewhere else, but it was so exceptional. And when the book came out as a promotional thing. Um, I had the uh, uh, a wonderful writer from New York Times, uh, the book review, uh, Alexandra Alter. She came up with her husband, and I invited my friend James up. And he made that, that exact thing. And a lot of people also made the exact recipes for this article for the New York New York Times. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And I feel you, even if you're reading this in winter when snap peas aren't in season, yeah. I'm like going to go find some snap peas. Yeah, yeah. And we actually, so we, you know, there's there's wonderful food stands all over sure. up there, as you know. So we would buy the snap peas and then we would get, oh, and also grilled sardines. He makes these really beautiful. I don't know how he just grills them perfectly. That's a delicious, you know, an underrated fish. And actually one thing I eat that I know how to make because I just open a can is um, – there's all kinds of Portuguese, really high-end uh, 
sardine makers, and they make them in spices and vegetable and hot vegetable oil. Oof, really delicious. So that you know, I open up that, I um, toast up a piece of bread. I know how to do that. I put out some beautiful color. You know, um, it's more curating, colors. right? Than more cooking. curating. Yeah, cooking. I know how to curate. Yeah. I have to shout out my colleague Anna Hazel, senior editor at Taste. She is writing a book about conservas and tinned fish. So I love <laughs> conservas and tinned fish, and. Um, there's a great place, you know, in New York called Huertas. Yes, yes. Uh, on f- First and Sixth or around there. Beautiful, really sweet uh, owners and chef and everything. And uh, it's partly, I mean, it's around, they do other kinds of dishes too, but you can you can have a whole meal of beautiful cockles and mussels and sardines and whatever. It's just beautiful. Speaking of collecting, you write very vividly about the, your bar, uh, in the bar at the at the house in the, in the novel. Yeah. And, yeah. and I like that you have your protagonist mixing uh, Negronis with 60-year Campari, 60-year-old. Is that intentionally like, a this guy doesn't know what he's doing? Or do you actually have a moment? Do you believe that this is the best way to make a Negroni? Look, I have people who, when they come by, Everyone brings a bottle of something, and a lot of my friends bring really special stuff. Sure, you know, uh, from all over the world. We have uh, some French, a French friend who lives nearby, and she, her parents are in wine country, but they make their own gin and they bottle it, and it's unlike any other gin I've ever. And I love making martinis, and I just couldn't bring myself to make anything with them. I just drink this gin straight up, nothing else. Uh, it is the elixir of the gods. It's so beautiful. <laughs> but yeah, people bring all this stuff, and I'm like, oh my god, should I? What do I do with antique Campari? Probably I should just drink it by, uh, you know, make a, something. I love that you have antique Campari on hand. That's well, just the best thing. It's all gone by now, but yeah, yes, it yeah. existed at one point. Now I'm, now I'm like slowly going through this gin. <laughs> but I, I know that people will always surprise me, and people come from all over. You know, people do their travels. Well, this has stopped during the pandemic, but before people would be like, oh, I just, um, somebody just brought me, I was on tour. And I, when I was reading in San Francisco, and I love anything Georgian. There's a great Georgian restaurant in my part of uh, Manhattan. Yeah. Um, What's and, it called? Um, it's called Chito Gavrito. Um, I can't remember where it is exactly, but yeah. somewhere near Union Square. And it's oh, these aubergine rolls and, oh, uh, nice. and the, this garlicky chicken they do, uh, a whole hen. Mm, mm, mm. It's incredible. So um, this guy who's just, you know, he reads my books and he brought me homemade cha-cha, which is a kind of Georgian brandy, C-H-A-C-H-A. Uh, and it was so freaking good. And I realized I was, you know, I had to wake up the next morning. And I forgot that I had it, and, and then the and the dude in the airport is like, <laughs> nice. it's like seven in the morning. I had an early flight to Portland. He's like, you can't, you know, you gotta you gotta check in your luggage. And I was like, there's no time, so I just drank the whole freaking bottle, <laughs> the whole freaking bottle. And I think I had like a NPR interview or something later that day. And I'm like, let me tell you about my book. Uh, <laughs> I'll definitely link to that interview in the show notes. <laughs> you can find it. Yeah. Oh my god. I love no, it. It's, it's great. Um, I feel like uh, this book it has a lot of a uh, time traveling happening, and I and one of the wonderful parts of the aspects of the book, our country friends, is the flashbacks of New York in the '90s, New York City. And I get to shout out to Screaming Mimi's. That's yeah, a great Mimi's. reference. But thank you. <laughs> one of the best references is Florent. 
you write about Florent as a meatpacking mm-hmm. institution from the 80s until, I would say, 2014, mm-hmm. maybe 2010. I might be wrong. Let's talk about Florent because clearly you have a connection to the place. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was such an eye-opener for me. You know, I grew up in eastern Queens, Little Neck Queens, you know, which is, it might as well be the suburbs, kind of the ferry, <laughs> yeah. it's far away. There's not even a subway there. You have to take the Long Island Railroad to get into town. And I was, it was a very provincial, I went to this um, kind of parochial Jewish school, right? I, you know, uh, and I didn't even know what Manhattan was. Like for a while, I confused some of the tall buildings in Queens for Manhattan. I, I just didn't know where, you know. And then I got into this high school in Manhattan, this kind of math and science high school where I met all of my friends, so who some of whom are, you know, composites for some of the characters in our country, friends. So, um, and that was Manhattan. That was a lower, uh, East Village, Lower East Side mm. kind of place. And it was incredible. And along the way, I think right, maybe right after school ended, I discovered Florent. And it was a trip. First of all, the food was really good. Always. Really Always good. good. It was never bad. I mean, that's the one thing about this restaurant. It was never always bad. good. Never bad. You could buy a carafe of white wine for, I think, six bucks, right? Which I know was more then, right? But still, you know, whatever. Can you imagine a $10 carafe today? Um, and and mussels with fries, um, this incredible... Um, what was it? Oh, it was like a goat cheese spinach. Again, remember, I was from nowhere, from Hickland. And for me, this kind of, you know, cheap French food, please. But it was also the fact that it stayed open almost entirely through the night. And it was filled with denizens that I had never, ever imagined in my life. You know, every artist went down there. Every writer went down there. There were prostitutes, uh, transgender prostitutes, who used to ply their trade along Little West 12th. Yeah, Village Idiot, right on that stretch. Exactly, exactly. Uh, And so they would drop in at 3 in the morning after finishing their, I guess, shift uh, or before a new shift began. And, you know, and it was the most democratic place in New York. And that's the kind of stuff I really miss now that Manhattan— and that's one of the reasons I really enjoy living upstate, not that we have that exactly, but it feels a lot certainly more democratic than the New York of today. I mean, you really have to go to, you know, to find a taco truck in Queens or Brooklyn if you want, or the Bronx if you want to find something like that today. But the the Florent was just—and it was a beautiful kind of, you know, it had a chrome bar— there was a, a kind of a letter a board. Zinc, it had a zinc bar. Zinc bar, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry, zinc bar. It had a kind of letter board where there would be funny writings. The The owner was this wonderfully flamboyant dude. You know, he was a French guy. His, his name was Florent. Um, it was it was probably the most perfect restaurant in the world. And when it closed, I remember I went there the night before it closed. Oh, you did? I did. Oh, I did. I was doing a reading in Israel, of all places, and I was like, put me on the flight. I got to get back in time for it. And it was... So depressing, honestly. Um, And I think for me, Manhattan really lost a lot of its luster. It was the meatpacking district before Restoration Hardware, before a lot of that bullshit that that made that neighborhood soulless. It's soulless. I'm sorry to offend people who live there. I will. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) I mean, it's it's one of my most disliked neighborhoods. Yeah, me too. I go there for the Apple store and it's like, (laughs) that's right. That's where you go for it. It's like high-end electronic crap, not, not anything... I haven't eaten there in ages. Oh, you know, Pastis reopened. That's okay, but, yep. you know, I wish they would move somewhere else. Yeah. Do you remember when Tom Brown used to hang out at Pastis, like, every single morning? Yeah. He would be yeah. at the, like, at, right. like, Pastis had a real vibe, too, similar to Florent, yeah. like, years later. Yeah, yeah. Characters. But he sort of picked up the baton from Florent in a way, but it was never like it. Never like it. 
But I, I just think, are there any other restaurants from 90s New York that you want to remember? I think our audience would, would appreciate that. I would. Yeah, yeah. So there were a bunch actually not far from the meatpacking industry. And I used to live around that area. I used to live on 11th and, uh, oh, God, I can't remember where, like uh, – Greenwich, probably. Yeah, Greenwich and 11th around there. So there was a great place on Jane around there called El Faro. And I think I've written about that in other books I've written because it is it was a real kind of a Spanish place. Everybody used to smoke inside the walls were these kind of murals of um, scenes from Galicia. It was the Galician cuisine. So mariscada and green sauce, like thick and garlic or shrimp al ajillo, and just everything was, I mean, the salad had garlic on it. The <laughs> tablecloth had garlic on it, you know. You walked out of there and you would smell like garlic for the rest of your life and, and smoke because people would smoke. Yeah, while what eating. a wonderful bouquet there. The garlic breath and the then the cigarette. I the mean, cool you know, breath. and I remember like people go on dates. I would make out with people after <laughs> yeah. smoking and eating there. I don't know how the hell because it didn't matter at that point. You know, everyone no. smelled like a garlic ashtray. <laughs> um, just delicious, delicious food. Yeah. Another place. Um, uh, what the hell was it called? Rio Mar, which was also which was right down the street from um, Florent. Um, in one of those sort of triangular buildings, beautiful buildings, um, also Spanish food, uh, specializing obviously in, in seafood. Uh, I, went, I saw, I think, the biggest roach I've ever seen in New York <laughs> the, on the wall there. It looked like one of the lobsters had escaped. For a second, I was like, huh, get him back in the tank. And then, I'll even then he sh- flew, flew away, and I was like, oh. <laughs> oh, my God. I'll even shout out the old Fatty Crab that was Fatty over Crab. There. Remember yeah. Fatty Crab? I remember Fatty Crab. I think one of the owners of Fatty Crab I don't know how this works. I think they have a place in Hudson, which is another great food town upstate, called Back Bar. Which Zach is... Palaccio. Oh, that's it. Zach Palaccio. Hopefully, one day will be on the podcast. I right. old, uh, you know, acquaintance of mine. Good guy. Really good, good guy. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in, he's behind that, right? Yeah. So, so that's a great place, and they do a kind of um, they do all of the cuisines of South Asia, of Southeast Asia, which can be a disaster, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But everything has a very specific taste, and everything is as spicy as it should be. So, highly recommend. When handled in the right hands, like Southeast Asian cuisine, yeah. my goodness. Yeah. It's yeah. the best. Yeah. Let's get let's talk about your travels because you you reference some travel writing you've done and and a lot of travel for your for your book tours and, and your and mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. Where do you like to travel for the food? I know this question seems boring, but I feel like I want to. Just where does your mind go when I ask you this kind of basic question? I used to be a contributing when I was younger. I used to be a contributor to travel and leisure. Uh, Ooh, with like good expense accounts. With era? the greatest oh, expense accounts because this was nice. an, when Amex owned it. Yes. Something called Meredith, I think, owns it now. So. Oh, so they gave you like a black or something? <laughs> they didn't give me a card, but there was, you know, I remember like, I remember at one point flying business on Cathay Pacific to Hong Kong, uh, staying at the peninsula, not just in any room, but in the, um, in the telescope suite where there's this giant telescope that looks out into the skyline from Kowloon where, you know, uh, and then having a Rolls Royce Phantom drive me to the airport. I mean, it, was, it was bananas. You know, I was like 30 years old. I'm like, this is life? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all been downhill from there, obviously. Um, but yeah, I, I, so yeah, I, I, food was a huge concentration for me. So I think some of the cities I enjoyed most, Bangkok for sure. I mm. mean, another one of those cities where you walk around, people are selling you, you know, hot soup in plastic bags and you drink through a straw. I mean, you know, you, you just kind of, another great city for ferries. You can take a ferry and hop around from um, 
you know, from pier to pier, and there's great food just walking a couple of blocks inland. Bombay is incredible, and I went there with a friend of mine, Suketu Mehta, who's a great eater, and uh, wrote Bombay Maximum City, a great Pulitzer finalist of a book about Bombay. So he was, he knew where all the, you know, so we were both eating really well and being chased by gangsters and stuff. It was like a, a sounds full, like its own novel. Uh, your trip? It, it was. It was a full tilt kind of adventure. Uh, Beijing has great food. Um, yeah, I think Asia, Seoul, obviously, I did, as I mentioned, a piece on Seoul. Asia to me has some of the best food out there right now. Uh, in terms of America, I, I think Memphis is an incredible and underrated food for uh, for barbecue. Yeah, I love a good barbecue. Um, so I, yeah, Beale I, I, Street's got some spots, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. you get. I think uh, there's a lot of a lot of good dry rub barbecue up there. Yeah, really good, and a lot of it is like in not in downtown, far from downtown. Yeah, you're so you right. You have to Uber right. around, and it's always. I think there's one called A and R or something. Mm-hmm. It's in the middle of nowhere. I've never had anything so delicious. You know, it's like two bucks or something. It's ridiculous. But nice, Gary. Really great incredible. pick from Memphis. That was unexpected. Expected. I yeah. love that pick. Great yeah, one. Memphis is really great. I mean, the South in general is is yeah. pretty damn good. Uh, I would definitely put Memphis uh, on the map. Yeah. Do you want to um, break from fiction and get into some travel log? Yeah. Is that? <laughs> I would love to. Are you kidding me? I would love to have my own like travel show or something. Yeah. You know, I remember at one point we pitched it to some travel channel, but uh, they were like. I had a bad pitch. I wanted to. I think it was going to call the the annoyed traveler or something. It was like it was like me moping around because I, I didn't get bumped up to business <laughs> or something. And they're like, yeah, maybe not. But yeah. like just a food trip that would be incredible because I eat like a mother. I you feel know? you could take Tucci on. I feel like you could take him on. <laughs> <laughs> we aren't starting controversies here. Don't worry. Yeah, 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 yeah. I would love for you to to host a show or some kind of meet. I, I just enjoy your travel writing, written for Sora. I enjoy it. Thank so you. I enjoy writing it more than anything. Thing, honestly. So I want to ask you about the bungalow colony you grew up you, mm-hmm. you grew up going to. It is in Ellenville? It was in Ellenville. Yeah. Do you know Ellenville? Have you been there? So I was going to ask you about mm-hmm. Cohen's Bakery. Oh, yeah. Did you ever go there and have the corner eye at Cohen's? No, we didn't. And it was – the reason was – well, first of all, we didn't really know much about Ellenville. When we went to Ellenville, we went to one place only. There was a kind of mm. – it was like a Dairy Queen setup, but it wasn't Dairy Queen. It was like an off-brand Dairy Queen. And <laughs> Dairy had, King, probably. Dairy King. Yeah, <laughs> Dairy – yeah. Uh, Dairy Princess. Yeah. Um, it was um, – so we went there. There and then we went to the supermarket. We were also all really like uh, recent immigrants. Nobody spoke English well, and we had um, you know we couldn't afford anything. You know, uh, I remember like when we went out to uh, Ponderosa Steakhouse. Yeah, like that was a big thing. Or Sizzlers, you know. And I remember we'd go there and we would all stock up. You know, our grandparents would be putting tomatoes into their purses to you know to try to steal them, and because um, we were like, whoa, six ninety nine. We got to make this. The fake culture you know, is real, culture, man. You know, it's real. So we didn't. I don't think we. But there was a woman who drove around in this station wagon, this gigantic like AMC or something station wagon, and she would sell. She was this big woman, and she would scream, uh, breads, cakes, all across the bungalow colony. And all these Russians would come out for a quarter. You could buy a Danish for 50 cents. You could buy like a— What a cool memory. Yeah. And so I wrote about this in a memoir called Little Failure. And all of a sudden, this guy wrote in and said, I think that was my mom. Uh-huh. And he said we had a difficult relationship, I think, and she had issues and stuff. And that was very interesting because to us, she was like the br- the bringer of bread. She was the know? baker. Well, I have to say in Ellenville today, there's a bakery called Cohen's Bakery. Cohen's. Ellenville is on the Whitaker Honkson over the hill up in the Catskills. And I feel like it is the best Jewish bakery in New York State. Wow. And the corn rye that they're making is insane. It is so good. It is It is the most deeply flavorful bread 
And wow. it, it has a texture. I think good rye has that vel- that velvety texture, right? Yeah, I love right? good rye. Oh. Good rye. It's, it's corn rye. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was just wondering if you've been up there. I, I highly recommend I, a visit. I, I'm going to go for sure. <laughs> I'm going to go for sure. I actually well, and there's an, there's a restaurant there that people have been talking about. I hope it didn't close. Mm. Uh, Aroma or something? Aroma mm-hmm. or something. I don't know if you've ever, you haven't ever tried it. I, I would love to try both, go to the bakery and the restaurant. I've not been to a room. I've heard about it, but I, I know there's some some cool things. in Ellenville, very small little town, and it has so a great little theater there, though. Yeah, the theater. So what, is the theater now movies, or is it uh, uh It's a stage. It's a summer it's a stage. Stock. Yeah. Oh, because I think it was at one point a movie theater, because I remember seeing Octopussy there and being so wowed by that. I think it was my first bottle. Oh, there is a movie theater there. Of course, there's a movie theater there, and it's an old two-screener. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful little yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really great stuff. Like a quarter for popcorn back in the day. <laughs> oh, my God. I had such great memories. I'm glad we're talking about a TV and film because you write for Succession. And I and you also just praised Yellow Jackets, which... Yeah, shout out yeah. Yellow I, I should I should preface by saying I've done some some stuff for Succession. I'm not like, you know, okay. one of the main writers, but I do I did work on the second season. M- my error, uh, not yours, because that was clear when I prepped. It was you're a consultant on a Succession. Yeah. So I guess what draws you to this TV work? And, and in terms of the TV work, um, do you write food scenes? Because you have such this grasp of food uh, Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do. I haven't, I've never written a food scene. Uh, I hope to write a food scene. Uh, I find TV really, I'm, I'm a very dialogue-driven writer. So a lot of my uh, books, you know, just people talking, people talking over food. And, you know, prestige TV is all about people talking over food, sometimes in a private jet. But that's the, you know, that's, that's succession, really. They're all just talking and drinking and uh, making snide remarks over really ex- overpriced food. And um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I would love to, I would love to write a food scene. Um uh, and I th- shows like Billions have great food scenes. You know, they often call out great New York uh, eating spots. I think the people that write for that are big foodies. Yeah. So, the creator is is clearly a foodie. The creator's a huge foodie. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, Koppelman, right? Yeah, yeah. Brian Koppelman. Yeah. He's definitely like hanging out with a lot of food writers. And I, I like obviously TV that has like a real understanding of food and not just a surf yeah. superficial like yeah. resonates yeah. with like 98% of the population. Yeah. And, you know, I, I on, on that note, I love hanging out with uh, food critics. You know, I just recently had drinks with Adam Platt at mm-hmm. Pestis actually, oh, cool. you know, and he's really great. He's got a nice kind of... Uh, a no BS kind of attitude toward restaurants in New York. I remember Pete Wells, whose who's critiques I love. I remember having dinner with him too. So there's some really, really delicious writers out there. I love, we, you can learn a lot from a food critic. And on this show, just going to shout out, we've had interviews with Bill Addison at the LA mm. Times, Ruth Rachel, former New York Times, LA Times. Sure. Uh, Pete Wells previously. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Pete. Yeah, that's yeah. That who I said. Or? Yeah, yeah, Pete. Yeah, yeah Pete, we've had him the all best. on the Taste Podcast. And we really and, and Robert Saitsitsima. So. Oh, I love his He's too. great. And you can learn a lot from from the stuff. critics. We ask all of our guests on the Taste Podcast if there was a book that you could write, a cookbook, let's just say cookbook, Gary, without a budget or time or any even a deadline, what would that cookbook be? Wow, that's a really tough one. I feel like if it existed, maybe it already exists. Has, does Russ and Daughters have a cookbook? Ooh. Ooh, don't quote me on it. I'm going to say they've got such great branding. They must, they must have a cookbook. Have one. See, this is the thing. So if they <laughs> have one, then that kind of destroys any need for a cookbook for me because yeah. that that kind of cook, because they're incredible in that they have an amazing drinks list, one of the best drinks list. I mean, their mixology is second to none. A cool place. Um, you know, I love, because the Russian idea of food is you're basically, 
it's, it's all about zakuski, which is sort of the appetizer. I mean, the main dishes kind of suck, if you ask me. Sorry, all the <laughs> Russians out there. But it's the, you know, you're sitting around, little bits of herring on pumpernickel toast or sturgeon or sable or any one of these wonderful fishes. You put it in a blini, you put it on some kind of rye or, or some kind of peasant bread, uh, some pickles, and then you mix it with incredible drinks, right? And that's all you need, you know. So if there was, if that's, you know, that's what I like to serve people. That's my contribution when, when my friends make uh, dinners, you know, and they cook these uh, very complex, you know, my friend Suketu makes beautiful mm-hmm. Gujarati vegan mm-hmm. dishes, oh, uh, vegetarian great. dishes. And my, um, you know, my friend James makes that incredible vitello. And I will make, I will open up some beautiful Rosin Daughters sardines, slap them on pumpernickel bread and get some incredible vodka into the mix. I think uh, a little bit of vodka goes a long way. It really does. And Gary Scheingart, thank you for joining us on thank his you so podcast. Much. Thank you. Appreciate it. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 